My name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Wage Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. And I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. Every Tongue Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise, and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of Black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Association Preserve Inville Community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, interviewer Tiffany Penniman talked with Dr. Michelle Berger in Eatonville, Florida about Afrofuturism. Dr. Berger is an award-winning professor, a writer, and creative coach. She's also an associate professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies at UNC Chapel Hill and a former director of the Faculty Fellow Program at UNC Chapel Hill's Institute of the Arts and Humanities. Have a listen to their conversation. Hello, my name is Tiffany Penniman, and we're here at the Zora Festival in Eatonville, Florida, and I'm with Dr. Michelle Berger, and uh, I would like to get started. So just tell me a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in Afrofuturism. So I am a scholar of women's and gender studies and have been writing creative work for a long time, um, probably 25 years more than that, but really in terms of getting sort of published and being uh, better known for my creative work has come in the last 10 years. And I have a funny relationship to Afrofuturism um, because when I was writing or starting to write in the 90s, there was, I knew Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney, but I really thought, and I'm 51, so I really thought that at that time I was one of the only black people who wrote science fiction or was interested in. And when I would go to science fiction conventions, there really weren't a lot of people who looked like me. And it was Nisi Shaw, who's a really wonderful writer, well-known writer, she happened to be um, uh, working at the Seuss bookstore. I was a graduate student at University of Michigan, in Ann Arbor, and she was like the other person of color I met, and we would talk about things that later got defined as Afrofuturist. Um, I tend to describe my work as um, extraordinary things that happen to ordinary people. Nice. And so in your own terms, um, how would you define Afrofuturism itself? Um, and then how can we apply it to the wider world? So to me, Afrofuturism is a type of aesthetic and it questions the way in which canons have been created that depict African descendant people. So that, so mine, mine is really broad um, and I think people focus a lot on the futuristic part as in projecting um, what are the narratives that are going to sustain black people and people of color in the future, but I think it's also important to recognize that Afrofuturism is also about rethinking the past, right, and providing different kinds of narratives, um, questioning the tropes that we have used, and, and I, you know, that's in um, arts, politics, literature, visual design, fashion design. I primarily know more about, you know, speculative fiction, 
Um, so that's kind of where my interest has been, but I feel like people are using it, to answer the second part of your question, people are using it to really think about what are the structures that we have that take away life, right? And that really harm particularly people of color and particularly people of African descent and what are new ways looking at both creating new forms but also looking at what um, certain authors have written to help us think more imaginatively. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, some of that now is also being reflected in, in our movies, of course, and to some degree TV. But really, in many ways, it started with music and literature and even politics. And now it is, in some ways, much more mainstreamed. And so going back to what you said about um, sometimes people think of it mostly as that future side. But rethinking the past, it reminds me of Kindred with Octavia Butler. Absolutely. And so how would you say that um, just black women writers have really informed your own writing in terms of this genre and futurism? Yeah, I mean, it. I so personally, I feel like I'm very much indebted to um, the work of black women writers, 20th century black women writers generally. So people like Ntozaki Shange, Alice Walker, Pearl Clegg, um, a number of people in the, who are writing 80s and 90s. Now, in a more contemporary moment, I do a lot of work and I'm sort of, I've come out recently as a horror writer and writer of sort of dark, quote unquote, dark fiction. And so um, I love the work that's being done by people like Eden Royce, um, Nicole Kurtz, um, formerly Nicole Kurtz, she's now Nicole Smith, uh, Linda Addison. I think that um, really thinking about how women of color are reshaping what is horrific and moving away from this idea of, um, you know, creepy bad things, let's just say. Like what, you know, what many of us grew up with in the 80s and 90s of Stephen King, who's a wonderful writer, but looking at the ways in which um, harassment, uh, sexuality, you know, legacies of slavery, the politics of beauty are, um, have impacted our lives and are horrific and grotesque and, and worth reconsidering and thinking about. So the collection that came out a couple of years ago, Sycorax's Daughters, um, which is a collection of prose and poetry, prim primarily by um, black women, and they basically take on the horror field. And um, the work in there is really thinking about also how black female bodies have been depicted and labeled in certain kinds of ways and, and taking that on. So I find that you know, really interesting as well as you know, more on the, on the sort of science fiction end, but just in terms of, of horror, it's been really powerful. And, and I'll, I'll just say one more thing is someone who, so I was kind of raised um, in 70s and 80s and watched a lot of horror media, um, but then more recently went back and kind of reread the classics and reading other new work. And you know, when I read a lot of majority writers, there's no space for us. It, we're not, I should say, we're often, not I don't say exclusive, but we're not often fleshed out as characters in horror, mm -hmm. um, as women of color characters, and we're just, we're just not there. Um, or if we're there, we're either the, you know, the magical Negro, the, the conjure woman, you know, those kinds of things, right? And so 
just understanding that, um, particularly in this space around um, horror and dark fiction, there's some new exciting work out there by women of color that you're just not, you're not going to find in other places. Mm -hmm. And me and Kim were having that conversation recently um, just about the lack of institutional space for black women in horror. And so how do you engage in these conversations with your own students? Um, like, Are they doing any interesting work that you're helping them with as well? So it's, it's so funny because my, my PhD is in political science and, and I do interdisciplinary work and I'm, I'm in a women's and gender studies department and it's taken me a long while to figure out um, how to uh, have a more integrated approach. So my work is on racial and gender health disparities which are, can be horrific when we think about um, systematic inequalities in women of color. Um, but until recently I haven't really found ways to um, bring some of that other work as a creative writer, as a creative person. One of the ways it's happened is I teach a women in creativity course, upper division course, and in that we look at the ways in which um, women as a sort of in the, in the past two centuries have been excluded, have pushed against ideas of what is you know creative and artistic, but I um, often teach um, uh, Mind of My Mind by Octavia Butler. And that's that's actually one that, I mean, now it's kind of back in popularity, but it's an, it, if people have read Octavia Butler, and some of my students have, they are not as familiar with that. And it's just such an interesting novel in so many ways. And so they really love it. So that's one of their entryways. And I also teach, um, so if I have an opportunity, I also teach some short fiction by um, feminist speculative fiction writers. So that's one way. But then the other way is not so much on the horror end, but um, I just, through a big campus-wide initiative, I co-taught a class about the environment um, and intersectionality, but we use it through a sci-fi lens. And I happen to teach with an African-American female professor in German studies, German and Slavic studies, and an African-American woman professor who was in um, public health and we the three of us co-taught this class which was for first-year students coming in all three professors are black women and we're all talking about and we each had sort of our specialties but we we tried to use how has science fiction represented the environment and what does it tell us about vulnerability so we looked at like beasts of the southern wild and a range of texts and um, we got into an Afrofuturist perspective, even though we weren't specifically talking as much about horror. So I feel like the future is kind of bright for trying to, you know, find ways to use the lens of Afrofuturism to talk about disparities or to, to introduce kind of um, important concepts to students. And, and also students are coming with a much wider, you know, visual and reading landscape than they did even five, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, and then when you're thinking about people and writers like Zora Neale Hurston, oh how do you goodness. make those connections between her legacy oh and my the goodness. work that you're doing? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's such an honor to, to be here at this festival. I, to, to some degree, I think it is the next reclaiming of her work, right? Because Alice Walker um, wrote in the her volume, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, really reintroduced Zora Neale Hurston to um, both the emerging kind of feminist literary studies as well as to a larger public. But I think now people are recognizing Zora Neale's um, genius 
right, in envisioning, to, to one, to not be afraid of the past and to kind of probe deeply into some um, tropes and ideas about wider African-American culture. And I think we're now ready, because people, you know, when, when Zora was writing, people were very um, othering of her work and ashamed of her work. And, um, and I think, you know, now so many writers see her, her creativity and her genius as part of what this kind of next wave of thinking about both our survival, but also kind of our roots. And so it's, um, to me, it's, it, like I said, it's sort of the second imagining, reimagining of her work. And then earlier today, yeah. you mentioned that your novel, Renew You, mm -hmm. is about black women saving the world. Could you speak a little bit about that? <laughs> well, so yeah, um, it's set in the 1990s, and basically it is, the tagline is, what if a trip to the salon could kill you? Mm -hmm. And it imagines um, a natural hair care product called Renew You um, that potentially has a virus. And so initially black women, Latina women who are using it um, get sick and doctors sort of dismiss it as a skin rash. And so you follow two um, protagonists to try to find out what's happening. And, and so it's got a little bit of the conspiracy theory. It's got a little bit of, you know, this is obviously written before the widespread use of cell phones. So that idea of rumors that circulate. and But I wanted to get at the politics of beauty. Not not so much in saying any one hairstyle or one way of being is wrong, but to make us think about what are the push-pull factors that um, create the context for certain kinds of um, arranging our hair. And But it is, is actually based on a, a true incident in that in the 90s there was a product called Rio and it was billed as a natural hair care tonic or something um, out of Brazil. And I play with that idea and in real life, within two or three years on the market, it, there was a class action lawsuit bought, brought by women of color because their scalps were burning. There was actually almost no natural products in it. It had higher um, percentages of lye and other products, but it was billed under this kind of natural health. and so. I sort of took that idea and wanted to play with all of those pieces and um, also set the, the tone of the, the novella is that it's, it's really about collective female friendship that's going to help the women figure out what's going on. And so often in, um, so often in a lot of, I think, mainstream sci-fi speculative fiction, particularly film and TV, if you have a woman, it's like it's basically a cast of guys, and then there's one woman. Now, and I like, for example, I love Wonder Woman, right? And, and Wonder Woman was a fantastic film, something else. But I'm like, it's basically, you know, we kind of she gets excised from her community, and then you know she's with these guys, and then it also happens around sort of race and ethnicity, right? So there would be like one person of color in this other ensemble, and I just wanted to kind of play with that ensemble idea and. and so for so many black women and women of color, we have been each other's peer networks and we've been the witnesses and the guides and the supports. And so I wanted to explore that through female friendship and also, you know, to some degree counter the narrative that black women are competitive and jealous. I mean, if you look at the reality TV show landscape, right, mm -hmm. you just see 
so many so many ways in which black women seem to be antagonistic and opposed to each other. So I wanted to play with, with those some of those things. Okay. And that really speaks to just like the that element of black women writers, um, in terms of how they brought each other's work to prominence in terms of that public discourse. I'm like Toni Morrison as editor bringing all of her friends, like revolutionaries, um, like really memorializing their work too. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And, and I, you know, as you're, as you're um, talking through these questions, I mean, I really have to sort of locate myself in that I was, I was that person in, in undergrad in the late 80s, and it was, it was, it felt revolutionary to read Toni Morrison and Alice Walker. I mean, they were just starting to come into the, the canon in terms of what was acceptable. And, and also it was often, you know, because I had primarily white female professors who were teaching that work. And I'm so grateful, even though I see different things than they might see in the work, I was so grateful to have that, that context. And then, you know, of course you go back and you read Gwendolyn Brooks and you read so many people before them, but to have that kind of groundswell, like Tony Kate Bambara, and you know, many many people who are not as—I think there's been a resurgence, but they're not as well read as they once were, right? And I think we we also have to kind of give our due to the people who've come before us, which is connected to Zora Neale Hurston, right? Yes. And so, just in your own community in North Carolina, you're at the mm -hmm. University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Um, what work are you doing in the community as well in terms of connecting people with Afrofuturism, speculative fiction, or Black speculative fiction? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, we're um, very privileged to have Toshi Regan, who is an artist in residence, and she, a couple of years ago, adapted Parable of the Sower as an opera. Um, or as an opera and kind of a musical production and one of the things that, so I, I wasn't, I mean I, I wasn't directly involved in the production but in supporting the effort, so Toshi was very um, strategic in that she wanted, the, the, the um, performance was happening on campus but prior to that she wanted to do a series of talks and, and events in the community, around the community and she also wanted to upend this idea of you know, who the parable of the sower was for. And that took, she really pushed back on um, some ideas that the university had of like a kind of a formal event. So, so as part of that effort, um, I organized just a conversation about parable of the sower with my colleague at the time, Lily Nguyen, who is Vietnamese American. And we, we did, um, we held a space at a local um, bookstore and kind of did a community read and and I we talked a lot about some of the mother-daughter themes and Parable of the Sower and some other other ways that we wanted people to read the book ideally before they saw the performance but also other ways we wanted to kind of highlight Butler's work and so that was really um, it was really a gift to be with my colleague um, and see the work through her eyes and also so this is like I think what 2017 so we're all still, we're still trying to process what the Trump legacy presidency was going to mean, the kind of turmoil that was happening in our community. So it was a, it was a powerful time to talk about Parable of the Sower. Mm -hmm. And that it reminds me of um, just like the element of when you said rethinking the past with Afrofuturism. Also, like, what is our past going to look like in the future? So like at our current moment. And so how do you see mm. Afrofuturistic writers right now really shaping our future? 
I I think one of the and I you know I, I could be wrong about this but one of the things that um, I, I think buoys people when they come to contemporary Afrofuturist work is that there's a thread of resilience and optimism and um, and I think we need that you know I think it's very you know making critiques is is a very direct thing right there especially because there's so many things that seem to be um, in crisis or being challenged but what will sustain people really is doing the work of thinking about how do we make strong connections and build community and even if that community um, looks slightly different than it does now and I, so I, I think that's that's where to me where the readers are um, really resonating with our work right um, and particularly I would say on the because horror by its nature tends to have a, a, a much more um, I don't want to say just sort of darker but the sense of it's cathartic in a different way than I think what what kind of traditional science fiction does which is to kind of move us way way ahead into the future um, so I, I think some of the writers that are that are doing that work are leave those kernels of kind of optimism right and so but we also we don't know I mean it's not it's not clear for the for our human community where we will be in 20 years right um, we are at such a I've been trying to read a little bit more what people are calling cli sci-fi climate science fiction um, even though people have been writing that for a long time and you know we have to ask ourselves pretty deep questions about ourselves as, as a species right and so I think um, for Afrofuturist folks to try to do that but also you know lay some optimistic seeds in there is really important mm -hmm. And especially um, around the climate change topic, I know just because Laura know her science fiction, just like her capturing of like that environmental symbolism, um, mm. her local Everglades and Edenville yes. community, um, as we see at the festival now, just like that preservation. Yes. Um, I made a comment that in their eyes were watching God, how she documented the actual 1928 like um, Okeechobee Category 5 hurricane. Oh, right, so right. It's like, even that was like prophetic of our current times where like hurricanes are growing in frequency and strength, um, like they're devastating Caribbean communities. And so like, what does that mean in terms of preserving mm -hmm. culture and language and the people's traditions? Yeah, and I, it's, it's so, so powerful because I had forgotten that there was that piece in her work for sure. Um, well, and, and also what, what does it mean, I think, so what does it mean to be in an environment? What does that look like? Um, in the class that I talked about earlier, trying to get, some students got it, that because of historic inequalities, some of the people most affected by climate change are going to be women, globally, people of color, um, poor communities, all of that. But then trying for the students who didn't get that, trying to get them to understand that community may have to be refigured in some new ways, right? Institutions may need to be configured in new ways, was, was also a, a challenge. Politics need maybe be reconfigured in some new ways. Um, yeah, and I don't know as much uh, about the group in Durham that has been doing uh, emergent strategies. I think they're based in Durham, and I should know more about them, but that's another 
community that has sort of taken up Octavia Butler's work and and also Toshi Regan's long so she did the Parable of the Sower but she's an artist in residence for several more years and wants to really say um, have conversations and practices that say okay she I think the way she frames it is okay if things broke down right now what resources do you have inside of yourself just like um, Lauren from Parable of the Sower, and what resource do you have in your community that you would draw on? So trying to really get people to think about that, mm -hmm. I think is her next project, okay. which is pretty exciting. <laughs> and then I saw yeah. that one of your books is Transforming Scholarship, Why Women and Gender Studies Students Are Changing Themselves in the World. And so how do you see you and your students and your colleagues really playing their role in helping society figure out like what's going to happen when climate change like affects how we survive and coexist together, um, how gender constructs are refigured and oppressive things hopefully eliminated. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, that's a great question. So, so that book was trying to push back on that liberal arts, uh, that skepticism about the liberal arts. Like, what can you do with this degree? Mm -hmm. So our through empirical work. So we did a big global survey, and then we did some interviews. And we saw these patterns that most women's and gender studies students begin um, broadly defined kind of uh, different levels of activism as students and sort of civic engagement. And then, you know, because we, we talk to people five and ten years out, we see how those legacies continue, right? And so some of it is using their critical skills to um, rethink the workplace, let's just say, or to advocate for gender equality, racial equality in the workplace, but, but it's also like building better communities. So we are actually able to document that. Um, and I think what's been interesting, so now I'm, we're in the process, my collaborator and I are in the process of writing the third edition. And in this one, we're trying to front load um, so many students who um, have gone on or interested in the environment and, and climate change. So we're documenting the rise of, for example, female uh, small local farmers, organic farmers. Um, we're trying to document um, women in particular, but not exclusively going into the challenging the ag industry, but also going into biofuels. So um, we're trying to document all the ways in which people are using their degrees in unexpected ways. and and. Often finding, like for example, um, the biofuels industry, in, it might reflect a kind of, we might say, progressive idea about resources, but the actual day-to-day -day experiences are highly gendered. And so we have a student, a former graduate, writing about, about that. Like what does it mean to use, when people assume, you know, you can't use heavy machinery or you can't do this or, or just assume certain ideas about particularly what bodies can do certain things. So, um, so I think in that regard, that's what we, we get feedback all the time that, um, that sometimes liberal arts students get sort of pushed into certain kinds of jobs or in the nonprofit area, which there's nothing wrong with that, but to see any job as a job, one that you can bring a gendered um, analysis to, and a, and, a, and a, you know, I always say no job is a feminist job, but you can make, you know, feminist thinking a part of any job, um, but also the, the sense of how students or graduates are really pushing down boundaries of like 
nonprofit versus corporate versus business versus other kinds of versus entrepreneurship mm -hmm. that the landscape is much wider much more widely open okay and then are you interviewing these students and that's how you're collecting their data qualitative aspect so yes yeah, so we did so we the survey has about um, about 900 students okay. graduates in the survey from um, over 10 years out and then we did some um, interviewing from that and then we have these kind of um, highlights of career trajectories throughout the book okay. so yeah so that's so we're not doing another reboot if, after the third edition then we might do a complete reboot we would do the survey differently and okay. yeah and that reminds me of just Zorna Hurston's um, like the qualitative aspect of her anthropological work and so um, I've also been having some mm. conversations just on the value of different methods so Absolutely. like how qualitative sometimes is kind of dismissed as not valid because it's not like data like statistics and so how do you see that in connection to Hurston's work in terms of producing um, a better or more comprehensive picture of how you can engage in academic work, um, community work, and activism. Yeah, so these debates get uh, hardened and solidified depending on where you are, right? Mm -hmm. So in political science, just the name alone suggests that there's one legitimate way to do certain kinds of work. And so most of my career I've sort of pushed back on those notions. Um, and what I, what I suggest train graduate students um, in and, and undergraduates, so you want a broad methodological toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes the story you want to tell, like if you go to the state legislature and you want to um, make a case for rapidly moving on um, DNA rape kits, right? Well, you might need to make an argument that involves, you know, kind of a quantitative argument. However, to study systematic historical complex forms of oppression, um, depending on the question you're asking, qualitative methods can be highly suited to giving a much more, you know, richly nuanced, richly textured, um, broad picture of what what people, to me it's like what the lived experience is, right? So we get from quantitative data, we can tell um, really important things. Um, so the, the book that I'm the academic book I'm working on is how African-American mothers and, and their teenage daughters talk to each other. And, um, and that wants to intervene in the conversation about racial and gender health disparities, right? Because we have all these really scary facts and figures um, about obesity, about diabetes, but until you understand just how do, at least in the group that I'm looking at, um, how do African-American mothers navigate the healthcare system, which you can't necessarily get at just through statistics or quantitative work alone. You don't really have a sense of what doctors are saying to them, what they think about what their doctors are saying to them, um, how they then talk to their daughters about what doctors are saying to them or how they think about their own health. So um, it's really important to have, to me, a really broad and rich set of methodological tools. And Zorna Hushton was so wise and smart in um, learning ethnographic methods and, and then employing them to make visible hidden communities mm -hmm. or marginalized communities. Yes, and we see that just with the preservation and the flourishing of her historic Eatonville. And so what does a festival like the Zora Festival really do in terms of furthering her legacy, 
um, furthering her connection to Afrofuturism, especially with the theme of this year's conference? Well, this is a spectacular moment um, for the organizing committee, right? Because, um, so for example, myself, I would have loved to come to the Zora Norgerson Festival. I knew about it years ago and just could not get here. Um, the fact that now Afrofuturism, because of its visibility in the, in the wider culture, that's going to draw people in. And then, if, even if people don't know anything about Zora Neale Hurston, that allows for the next uh, kind of a layering of her work that just wouldn't be possible, right? I mean, I, I, can't, I can't think of any other theme that, particularly for you know, African-American folks and even the broader community, that is so, so speaks to the moment that we're in. Um, so I, I just, I think that having this long-standing commitment to Afrofuturism is just going to bring in um, also more creatives, uh, or people identif who identify as creatives, bring in um, more you know, young people um, who really kind of see themselves as wanting to do big things, right? And, and if we can remind people of how big Zora Neale Hurston's legacy really is, and couple that with Afrofuturism, I just, I think that it, it really is a, a right moment for many, many communities to get engaged. Yes, and since we are running a little bit close to your reading time, I have my last question. Um, what will you be talking about today later in your reading, and what do you think that um, future generations of black thinkers can really learn from um, contemporary Afrofuturists and Zora Neale Hurston herself? Mm -hmm. So I'm on a panel in just a few minutes about what is Afrofuturism, and I would like the panelists to drill down a little bit more about how they came to that, their own understanding of it, how it's maybe being used in a marketing sense that may or may not serve more liberatory purposes. And then I'm on a panel on um, women in Afrofuturism and I'm going to be talking about some of the things that we shared here about what kinds of um, narratives it helps us to see that aren't reflected in, a, in more speculative fiction. Um, and and then the last part of your question was about the kind of connection to Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah, so what do you yeah. think black thinkers, or future generations of mm -hmm. black thinkers can really learn from her? Oh my goodness, two, a couple of times, a couple of things. So she has a very famous quote that's, that says, um, research is formalized curiosity and you have to go poking and prodding. And I think that's really important that to, um, not be dull, and, and by dull I mean not be anesthetized by culture, right? Because Zora Neale Hurston was always curious about everything and everyone around her, um, and that's how you come up with new ideas. Um, and her persistence, you know, I think as a creative person, um, she models for us. You know, she had patrons. She worked with literary giants in her era. She found ways to support herself, you know, way before, like we think about like indie writers and self-published writers, she was doing all of that. Um, and she fought for her right to be at the table. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a really important thing for us as well, to, to recognize we deserve to be at the table, we have really important ideas, and to be persistent in our creative work, and to, to push back on status quo thinking. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Dr. Berger. Thank you so much for this interview. 
Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast, the official podcast of the Zoya Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Evil Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to never miss an episode. Yeah.